the the common concern about Soviet naval capabilities. So there's the the initial contacts and the initial links more often than not are in the arena of anti-submarine warfare, and then that grows into larger Navy-to-Navy programs. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. Corbin Williamson is an assistant professor of strategy at the Air War College. He holds a PhD in history from Ohio State University and specializes in the 20th century U.S. Navy. He has previously worked in the office of the Secretary of Defense Historical Office and taught for the Naval War College. His first book, the U.S. Navy and its Cold War Alliances, 1945 to 1953, will be published this year by University of University Press of Kansas. Corbin, welcome to Preble Hall. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So uh, I just need to say up front, the, the views I'm presenting today are my own and do not necessarily represent those of the Department of the Air Force, the U.S. government. In 1918, Admiral Hume Rodman states that the American squadron's intention is to maintain the ties of friendship that had grown between the U.S. Navy and the Royal Navy, quote, for all time, unquote. Was he right? Well, that very well may have been Rodman's intention, but that was not uh, what actually happened. So after the U.S. Navy cooperates quite closely with the British during the First World War, for a number of reasons, uh, those relations and the interoperability that had been developed between those two navies, the ability to fight and sail together, uh, withers away in the 1920s and the 1930s. Part of that is because there's differences in opinion over freedom of the seas and naval arms limitation treaties. Part of that is that from the U.S. Navy's perspective, uh, there's not a compelling scenario in which they envision the need to work closely with the British during the interwar period. That's not their primary strategic focus. What is the primary strategic focus for the United States? So for the Navy, they're increasingly concerned about operating in the Western Pacific against the Imperial Japanese Navy. And this is uh, was first brought out um, by the War Plan Orange book by Ed Miller in the early 1990s. And he really does a great job of showing how the Navy, uh, ever since the early 20th century, but especially in the 20s and 30s, through exercises and training and gaming of the Naval War College, prepared to uh, advance across the Pacific uh, to contest control of the Western Pacific with the Imperial Japanese Navy. And so that's the Navy's focus during much of the interwar period. Now, that seems kind of counterintuitive because at this time, the Royal Navy is arguably the most powerful Navy in the world in the 1920s. Is that fair? Yeah. And they have obligations in the Western Pacific. They have territories. They have islands. They have Australia. That is part of the Commonwealth uh, territories that are connected to the Asian mainland in Singapore and Hong Kong. So why couldn't we agree that Japan was a common threat and that we needed to work together in the 1920s and 30s? Well, there's part of it is the, the tension um, that stems from the, uh, the aftermath of the First World War with frustration on the, in particular on the American side about how the Versailles Treaty comes together and what results from that. Uh, the Great Depression certainly doesn't help. At the same time, you know, you, you raise an important point that did impact uh, operational links between fleet commanders. So in the late 1930s, 
there's some important contacts between the U.S. Asiatic fleet and the British Far Eastern Squadron, where uh, as the Japanese are expanding their campaign in China, and as that area is becoming more and more tense, these uh, uh, fleet-level contacts lead to discussions about, well, if we were going to work together, would we have a common operational code? They pursue that, but it doesn't really ever go anywhere. But that's about the extent of the, the ties in the Western Pacific. Now, one of the factors that sets this all up is the Washington Naval Conference. And I was wondering if you could just summarize the Washington Naval Conference and also discuss the role of the British and American relations during the conference itself. Sure. So uh, in the Washington Naval Conference, uh, the British are concerned about the U.S. Navy's proposed uh, naval building program. The Navy had begun a large naval building program in 1916 and then again in 1918 that had been largely put to the side during the First World War because of the need to focus on uh, anti-submarine craft as opposed to battleships and battle cruisers. The Americans appear to be poised to begin this program uh, at the end of the war, and the British feel the need to match. Um, and what comes together is Secretary of State Charles uh, uh, Evan Hughes, I believe, um, calls together this conference, and they agree to limit the size of uh, naval construction programs, and they set in place a holiday on battleship construction. And uh, this leads to the scrapping of a number of ships, most of which are not constructed, but some of which have already uh, begun construction, and sets caps on the size of fleets for the 1920s and 1930s. The other thing, uh, in terms of the Pacific, that the Washington Naval Conference does is it bars further fortification of important uh, positions in the Western Pacific, uh, which reduces the Navy's ability to expand, say, Guam or Manila into a large secure fleet base uh, in the way that Pearl Harbor was built up in the late 1930s. Does that mean that Pearl Harbor was not part of the the conference negotiations? Uh, my understanding is that Pearl Harbor is that the, the expansion of the base at Pearl Harbor is allowed under the Washington Naval Conference. So I have to say I'd have to go back and look at the text specifically. Sure. And during the 1920s, as the U.S. becomes a more prominent player. How would you characterize the British view of the American Navy? Would you say that it was they viewed them as a threat in terms of kinetic action, or would you say that they were a potential threat to their own power in terms of, hey, there's here's the new kid on the block, and we want to keep the kid down so that we maintain our standing in the world? Or is there a different way to characterize the British view? I think probably closer to the second of the two that you outline, there's certainly a recognition that the U.S. Navy has grown in size, and you know, uh, aside from the Royal Navy, is the, the uh, or is the second most powerful navy in the world in the 20s and 30s. Um, there are close and uh, there are close contacts at the individual ship level. So when British and American ships, you know, visit one another, the relations are cordial and they're professional. In terms of the way the Admiralty viewed the U.S. Navy. I think there was a recognition of growing an American strength, but also a confidence born out of Britain's dominant role on the world's oceans over the preceding decades and really century uh, that uh, the, the British would remain the dominant naval power, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, 
their interest in collaborating with the Americans will rise in the late 1930s. And there's a series of conversations in which actually uh, Admiral Leahy takes part at one point um, where they explore what cooperation might look like, but it doesn't really develop in it, into anything practical until World War II starts. Do they conduct any exercises jointly in the 20s or 30s? None that I'm aware of, and certainly none that I could find. There's a couple times where the British practice running a multinational convoy, but it's with all British ships, and they're just using the international flag code as a way to, to test that capability. But I, I, I haven't run across any exercises in which British and American warships train together. When does the relationship become more of one of equal partners? When does, when does the British view change then? Well, I certainly think by the time we get into uh, to 1940 and 1941, in particular after the fall of France, which really undermines uh, both Royal Navy and British strategic planning up until that point, um, that really leads them to seek out closer relations with the Americans and to search for ways in which the Americans can contribute to their war effort and to plan for how the U.S. Navy might be integrated into their war effort if the Americans were to join uh, into the fight against Nazi Germany. Now, are they doing that? Are they, t- are they tying to the leaders of the Navy rather than to the individuals who are in London? By that, I mean you have a very interesting combination in 1939 and 1941 based in London at the U.S. Embassy. You have the ambassador, Joseph Kennedy, father of the future president, and you have Alan Goodrich Kirk, who Mm -hmm. is the naval attache, who is working very closely to Kennedy and, you know, becomes very close to the Kennedy family as a result. He ends up serving as an ambassador and a a key advisor to, to John Kennedy's administration much later. But how how does that play into this? So uh, Kirk uh, and his staff uh, work to, uh, from their perspective, what they're trying to do in 1939, 1940 is learn from the Royal Navy's experience. So from their perspective, the British are involved in, you know, what we would call major combat operations against a major power. And this is an opportunity for them to see, well, how is war at sea being conducted in 1939 and 1940? They have limited success in getting access to uh, British information during this period. They're able to get some, but not as much as they would like. And the the British director of uh, naval intelligence, uh, Admiral Godfrey, is he, he wants to have a relationship with the Americans, but he doesn't want to give away you know, what he sees as the Royal Navy's closest secrets. Uh, This changes in the summer of 1940 as a result of uh, the fall of France and Britain's increasingly dire strategic situation. David Zimmerman uh, has really documented this quite well in his book, Top Secret Exchange. There was a program built around a quid pro quo, you know, you give us this and we'll give you that. The British in particular want to get access to the Norden bomb site. Um, That eventually falls away and both sides agree it's too difficult to do a quid pro quo. We're just going to have to exchange information more wholesale. Um, Kirk's position is complicated by the arrival of Vice Admiral Robert Gormley in the fall of 1940. And he's the, the special American naval observer, Spinavo, um, along with two army officers. Who President Roosevelt sends over to discuss, well, really to analyze Britain's uh, potential for remaining in the war and then also to discuss ways in which the two militaries could cooperate. 
Now, at this point, with FDR having served as an assistant secretary of Navy and has a lifelong interest in the Navy, does he insert himself into this process or does he trust Kennedy, Kirk and Gormley to carry out this new naval relation with uh, the Brits? This is the same period in which he is also building a personal relationship via correspondence with uh, Winston Churchill, who's just become the prime minister and and earlier in May 1940. And so he's certainly building a relationship with the British in that sense. As far as the Navy to Navy talks are concerned, he's less involved in the day to day matters. It's certainly clear, though, that he made it clear to Harold Stark, the chief of naval operations, and then Stark in turn made it clear to Gormley that when Gormley was in these discussions, he was perfectly free to share his own views and his own opinions, but he was not free to commit the U.S. Navy or the United States to a specific course of action. Uh, And so that very much reflects um, both Stark, but also ultimately Roosevelt's uh, concerns about making commitments prior to the United States entering into the war. That reluctance to make commitments, um, you know, is even seen in the ABC One talks in the spring of 1941, where the U.S. does commit itself to a Germany first strategy if the U.S. enters the war. But it's with that caveat of, you know, in the scenario where the United States finds itself in the war. So that's that's certainly an influence that Roosevelt has on these deliberations. You know, in popular culture, we see a tension between the British and the army of the U.S. Army, uh, specifically, you know, you watch the movie Patton, certainly not a greatly historical, historically accurate movie. But you see this dynamic between Bernard Montgomery and George Patton. How would you say the relationship between the senior naval leaders of the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy uh, compared? Do we know anything from their personal correspondence or their actions that suggests any kind of uh, tension like that? Certainly compared to, to, to Patton and Montgomery, I think they were more cooperative. Um, that may not be saying much, but uh, they, uh, Stark in particular, uh, while he's CNO up through uh, early 1942, uh, in, in several instances actually puts uh, the Royal Navy's needs um, ahead of those of the U.S. Navy. You know, the, the destroyers for bases deal is a great example of that. Um, that's it provides aid for the British destroyer force at a key point in the war, um, but reduces the U.S. Navy's anti-submarine reserve capabilities in terms of escorts that will cause problems uh, in 1942. Stark also, and this is with the support of Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox, um, will, will prioritize the repairs done on British warships and American shipyards under the, the Lynn Lease Act passed in March 1941. And that leads to delays in the American Naval Construction Program as shipyard workers and shipyard resources are focused on getting damaged British ships back into the fight. As I said, yeah, that leads to some delays in the American Naval Construction Program. So in that sense, uh, Stark is very much pro-close relations with the Royal Navy. Now, I want to jump ahead a few years because, you know, your book is about the post-war period. So I want to make sure we, we allow enough time for that. Following the end of the conclusion of the Second World War. Why is it that the United States takes uh, the lead in in naval operations when they see a new threat, when you have a Royal Navy, which is still sizable, and the UK still has a sizable empire? I think there's 
there's a couple of reasons that lead to the, the, the close post-World War II relations that build up between the U.S. Navy and the British and Canadians in particular and the Australians to a lesser degree. Certainly, Americans are quite concerned, especially by the spring and summer of 1946, about the possibility uh, that the Soviets will arm themselves and construct a fleet of uh, ocean-going submarines equipped with German uh, submarine technology, in particular the Type 21 submarine, which was faster and more capable and uh, a greater threat to convoys and to surface ships in general. Uh, they're concerned that the Soviets are going to draw upon the technology that they've gotten uh, from the Germans and will use this to construct uh, a fleet of submarines that could threaten or cut the North Atlantic lines of communication in the event of the war with the Russians. So there's there's serious concern about Soviet naval capabilities. And, and I want to I want to stop right at there at that point, sure. Corbin. Can you tell us is is there a way to estimate how much the United States got uh, compared to the Soviet Union uh, with regard to German technology, specifically with U-boats? I know that today you can go to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You can see the Albacore. Uh, with you know the teardrop hull, which is based on a very late German design, mm -hmm. uh, you have ger some German designs which have anechoic coating, uh, and they're introducing other technologies. But what is it exactly that we're getting from the German scientists that we captured? What are the Soviets getting from the German scientists that they captured? So you you mentioned a couple already in terms of hull design. Uh, certainly also the um, the use of the of a snorkel. To, um, to run engines, uh, to run turbines uh, while the submarine is at a shallow depth, um, but allowing them to also move more quickly through the water. Uh, our, we capture several uh, German Type 21 submarines at the end of World War II. The British get uh, some as well. Uh, but we also know that the Russians get some because we split up the German um, Navy at the end of the war is divided out um, between the three, between us, the British, and the Russians primarily. Chris Madsen wrote a great book about that, about the disposition and the demobilization of the German Navy. And we also know that the Russians have gained access to German scientists. You know, we had scientists who came, who we secured, but the Russians also secured scientists uh, who yeah, were primarily... Like Verner, Verner, yeah, right, like Werner von Braun on the on uh, the rocket program, and they had, exactly. but they also got some as well, right? Right. And so we know that they have access to these scientists, and the fear is, rightly so, and this is what the Soviets do, is that they they draw upon those uh, scientists and the equipment that they've secured to upgrade their own submarine designs. Now, they do so slower and to a lesser degree than the U.S. Navy feared in 46 and 47, but in the sense, in the broadest sense, their concerns were largely justified. Now, that represents a dynamic shift as well for the Soviet Union. Here is a nation that is that has stressed its army and the numbers of its population in order to support the army, its logistics, its ability to fight. Uh, during World War II, it's largely a coastal navy, uh, primarily in the Baltic, parts of the Black Sea, etc. Do we get a sense of... of uh, how they start envisioning themselves as a naval power after the after the Second World War. Joseph Stalin, the the premier of the Soviet Union, certainly has an interest in a surface-going fleet, 
that that never really gets off the ground in his life uh, in the way that I think he wanted to. The most recent scholarship by uh, by Norman Palmer and Norman Friedman has really shown that the the Soviet Navy in this period, the late 40s and the early 50s, was still primarily oriented towards coastal defense and protecting the sea lines of approach to the Soviet Union. And so in that sense, uh, American and British concerns about a large scale campaign in the North Atlantic were large for this period uh, were not on point. That capability comes later as we get into the late 50s and the 60s. But in, in this period, the Soviets, uh, the Soviet Navy is still primarily oriented towards coastal defense and securing the immediate waters bordering the Soviet Union to protect themselves from incursions. Is this what really drives the new Anglo-American alliance in terms of naval operations? Yeah, I think it's primarily the uh, the concerns about Soviet submarines equipped with German technology. In terms of the, the naval planning that goes on in the U.S. Navy in 1944 and 1945, there's also uh, kind of a, a supporting argument that post in the post-war world, there will need to be oceanic policing, and that is presumably going to be done by the Americans and the British. And so that's an argument in favor of continued close relations. Uh, but it's really this concern about Soviet submarines that drives the immediate decisions in 1946 to exchange information, to begin standardization efforts that um, that are kind of the foundations for this informal naval alliance. Who are some of the key players in the mid, sorry, in the late 1940s with regard to the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy in building this new partnership? So James Forrestal is certainly very important as uh, as Secretary of Navy, and then later on as the first Secretary of Defense. Um, He's a strong advocate for both a taking a more hardline position towards the Soviet Union, and as a corollary to that, maintaining close relations with America's uh, closest wartime allies. Uh, Admiral Forrest Sherman, who's the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations in the late 40s and later becomes the Chief of Naval Operations, is another important figure. Uh, Arthur Radford plays a key role when he's the uh, the DCNO for air, and then later on, um, the head of the Pacific Fleet. He'll sign an important agreement with the Royal that's, Australian Navy. That's the Radford Collins agreement, and I want to come back to that. Sure. On the British side, a, a really important player is uh, Bruce Fraser, who is the head of, he's the commander in chief of the British Pacific Fleet in 1945. And so he has very close relations with Nimitz and also with Halsey and Spruance. Uh, that he develops during the final phases of the war against Japan. He goes back, serves several terms in the Admiralty, and ultimately becomes the British first sea lord, their rough corollary to our chief of naval operations. And he is a very strong advocate for close relations with the U.S. Navy uh, because of his wartime experience. Corbin, can you discuss from your book the four elements of Navy-to-Navy link during this period? Yeah, so the four that I look at uh, in, uh, and I have a chapter on each of these, uh, look at planning ties, the ways in which the navies plan for future conflict, both at the national level and then also at the fleet level, uh, and the ways in which that differed for uh, the Sixth Fleet and uh, for Atlantic planners, and the way that events played out in the Pacific with the, the Pacific Fleet and the Royal Australian Navy. The second would be the way in which liaison officers and attaches and exchange officers are used to make personal connections, both, again, at the national level, but also at, at lower levels, uh, at the fleet and operational level. 
um, and the role that those individuals can play both to aid Navy to Navy relations um, and also to damage them. We see that in the example of Captain Stephen Eureka with the, uh, the Royal Australian Navy, or more accurately with America's military relations with Australia. And then the other two that I look at are uh, standardization, uh, efforts to standardize both concepts, uh, but also equipment in this era. And then finally, training edu and education links in which combined exercises and exchanges at the professional uh, between professional military education institutions serve to uh, link these navies together. Let's focus on that for a minute, education and training. How did it change after the war? Because you mentioned that there were very few, if any, exercises prior to the war. But what are we doing in terms of sending our officers to the UK, them sending them here, or any other training opportunities that the two countries might have enjoyed? In terms of uh, personnel, you know, going to everybody, different people's schools, we begin to start sending, at the British request, we begin to start sending American officers to the Imperial Defense College, their the rough corollary to our National War College, in uh, it's either 1946 or 1947. Uh, the British offer us a slot, and the Joint Chiefs recognize that by accepting that, we're going to be uh, also accepting uh, British officers coming to our schools. There had been British officers and Canadian officers who had attended the, the Army Navy Staff College and the version of the Naval War College that's uh, being held in 1945 and 1946. And that continues after the war. So there's British officers who attend up through 1950. Um, I was even able to actually get access to the, the personal papers of one uh, British officer, uh, Veer Allison uh, White Boycott, who comes to uh, the comes to Newport and then writes a bunch of letters back to his family about his experience there. And so it was really fascinating to see kind of his perspective on uh, American naval education. So we've got these these exchanges that are going on between schools uh, on the U.S. Navy side. Those are diminished in 1950 when the Americans will kick uh, the British and the Canadians out of both the National War College and the Navy War College. Why was and that? So they do so because uh, with the formation of NATO in 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, there are concerns that the overly, or the, the, not overly, but the, the close ties that the Navy has with the British and Canadians, if they come to light, will lead other nations to request similar access. And in particular, they're, uh, they're, inter they're interested in avoiding requests of that nature from the French. And so they decide, uh, we, we're not going to be publicly seen to play favorites. And so if that means making a choice between having y'all here and asking y'all to leave, we're going to have to ask y'all to leave. Hmm. The British are furious about this. But ultimately, they recognize, you know, that, that there's not much that they can do about it. International officers will return to the Naval War College in it's either 1955 or 1956 when they create the Naval Command and Staff Course, which is specifically designed to bring international naval officers to Newport to participate in military education with their American counterparts. What were some of the themes to the success of the partnership? I think the... Certainly the, the importance of personal relationships that, that develop during, uh, as a result of these Navy-to-Navy -Navy ties. Again and again, you'll see instances where, you know, so-and-so knows somebody because of the Second World War. And so they're able to build upon that relationship and use it to get access or to further an agreement 
um, in the late 1940s. Uh, there's also a sense in which, you know, at, at times these navies were working on similar challenges. Admiral Bradford, when he's the deputy chief of naval operations for air, tells the American naval attache, uh, Captain Benjamin Custer in Ottawa, that anything the Canadians want from us, you know, we're going to give them. And he, he does that because he wants to uh, both aid the Canadian Navy, but he knows that the Royal Canadian Navy is at this time pursuing developing its own naval aviation capability. And so he sees the development of Canadian naval aviation as a bolster to the U.S. Navy's naval aviation capabilities. Because this is the same time that the at the height of the inter-service disagreements about roles and missions between the Navy and the Air Force that are going on in the U.S. Uh, that's you know known as the revolt of the admirals. So in this sense, other navies can be indirect allies to the U.S. Navy in its internal bargaining with its sister services. So certainly personal relationships are one way in which kind of this, this post-war alliance works. It's also aided by the, the common concern about Soviet naval capabilities. So there's the, the initial contacts and the initial links more often than not are in the arena of anti-submarine warfare and then that grows into larger Navy-to-Navy programs. I want to go back to the, the issue of personnel ties or personal ties, because in your book, you mentioned the importance of mid-level relationships. These are, the, these are not the four-star levels. These are lieutenant commander, commander level. And, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do with my midshipmen at the Naval Academy is to stress the importance of getting to know the, the international students that we have here. Uh, for example, like last semester I had a naval history class where the students were all international students from all around the world. I mean, they were Rwanda, Malaysia, uh, Peru, Sri Lanka, etc. And the importance of, of getting to know and understand these different countries, the way they do things, uh, their cultures, their languages, their food, everything about it. But mostly it's about getting to know the individuals and what an incredible opportunity that these young midshipmen and cadets from some of the other countries have in getting to know each other. Because is this something that you see as play, playing as important a role 60 or 70 years ago with uh, not necessarily midshipmen at the time, but these junior officers or mid-grade officers who are in maybe assistant naval attache positions and which will help them foster the relationships as they become more senior in our Navy as well as the British Navy, Royal Navy. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think there's, and yeah, I think that's exactly how, that's exactly the, the dynamic that's at play. The, there's, a, I found a great quote by uh, Admiral Strubble, who's the commander um, of uh, one of the American naval commanders in the Korean War. And he was on a cruise that the U.S. Navy took to Australia in the 1920s. And this is a rough paraphrase, but he essentially says, you know, it was really valuable to go out and get drunk with the Australians in the 1920s, because when World War II came, we already knew each other. and We kind of seen each other with our hair let down. <laughs> um, and so that um, those personal connections absolutely pay dividends later. The British in particular do a pretty good job of sending folks to American staff colleges and war colleges who then later on come back as, uh, you know, say, captains to be the attache in Washington, or even as rear admirals, to be a more senior attache. Um, so they try and circle people back to the United States who have 
built up connections with the U.S. Navy to try and take advantage of those. They do a good job about rotating those folks back to the U.S. Um, so absolutely kind of those those relationships that are built early in careers pay dividends later. We have the same dynamic here at the Air War College. About 15, 20 percent of our student body is international officers. Wow. And that's one of the, the great things about having them here is they get to know each other and they get to know the Americans. And the Americans get to know them. No, I absolutely agree. It's an incredible, incredible opportunity to learn about the world around you, but as, as well as building those personal relationships. I want to cite a, a quote from your book. Domestic political concerns exerted a strong influence on naval relations. Uh, in the U.S., public support for the United Nations in 1946 and 1947 especially meant American admirals had to avoid public, uh, uh, public steps that might appear to undermine the UN, such as forming a naval alliance. I was wondering if you could expand on that. The formation of the UN in 1945 uh, leads to um, just wide, is, is done as a result or, or is supported by large segments of the American public. And this crosses political divides, you know, Republicans and Democrats. And there's this belief and hope, even confidence, that support for the UN and using the UN for the purposes for which it was created can help to reduce international tensions. That's going to be undermined as the 1940s turn into the 1950s, but especially right after World War II, there's this great confidence. And that manifests itself in Navy to Navy relations by making American admirals uh, very concerned to do anything that would be seen as creating a military alliance. The perception at the time was that Nations forming one-to-one or one-to-two nation military alliances were, by by pursuing individual links as opposed to uh, supporting the UN, uh, that they were going against the idea of the UN or undermining it. So when uh, Winston Churchill comes to uh, Fulton, Missouri in March 1946 and gives the Iron Curtain speech, that speech is best known for its... uh, description of an iron curtain descending across Europe. In that same speech, he calls for a close military to military relations between the United States and the British Commonwealth. And he calls for a number of the things that the navies pursue. He wants military exchanges and standardization and combined exercises and cooperative planning. And this is interpreted by uh, large segments of the American press, as well as a number of senators and congressmen as a call for a military alliance that is seen as at odds with the United Nations. And there's a a torrent of criticism of that particular idea. People may agree or disagree about whether or not the Iron Curtain has descended, but there's a lot of pushback against the idea publicly of forming this British Commonwealth American alliance. And that really sets the stage for these concerns that American admirals have about not wanting to be seen to play favorites. If they can play favorites without being seen to do so, they're perfectly happy to do so. Uh, But they just don't want to be seen to do that by the American public. That must have been an incredibly frustrating experience for the American admirals, because when you think about the tradition of the United States Navy, in the 19th century, there were no U.S. armies overseas. You know, certainly had some during the Spanish-American War, but prior to that, you did not send the United States Army. It was the United States Navy that was operating in international waters. It was the United States Navy that was conducting diplomatic missions that were carrying the diplomats themselves. And they had a large degree of autonomy and responsibility. 
do you think that the post-war period would change fundamentally changes how the flag officers in the United States Navy relate to the U.S. government and as well as to the public? Well, I, I don't know. That's I hadn't really considered it in those terms, you know, as you described. I mean, in one sense, I think awareness of American domestic politics and the need to be not going against the position of the administration, it, it, that's a longstanding uh, challenge for senior naval officers and for senior military officers. Um, I have things that I think I need to do in the, in the pursuit of military effectiveness, but I also am subservient to political leaders and I take guidance and direction from them. So it, it certainly was challenging in terms of the way the Navy operated um, in terms of publicity. So, you know, the, the, the existence of these exchanges is classified and the existence of doing combined submarine training with the Royal Canadian Navy is classified to avoid those uh, awkward public questions. At the same time, the, the White House and the President Truman um, are aware of what's going on. And, the, you know, the, the Navy is not operating outside of the, um, the wishes of the administration. Um, it might be a little bit in advance of American society in terms of its, um, its becoming a Cold War uh, Navy, but it's not doing so in advance of political guidance. Let's go then to the conclusion of your book, where you discuss that the culmination of all these events and all these people can really be seen in the eyes of the Korean War, and I, was, I would like you to explain that. When the Korean War begins in June 1950, uh, the immediate naval response is, uh, for the U.S. Navy, it's built around the aircraft carrier, the Valley Forge, and then the Royal Navy contributes a light aircraft carrier, HMS Triumph. And the Triumph and the, the British task group that participates in those operations had just a couple months earlier, um, in February and March 1950, done a series of exercises with the U.S. 7th Fleet uh, built around the carrier Boxer. And they had practiced using American signals and American tactical books. And so when they join up with the Valley Forge, the British are able to draw upon that exercise experience that the ship's crews and personnel have just had um, several months earlier. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a rapid transition and it's a, I'm always hesitant about using the word seamless, but there aren't many problems in transitioning to cooperating and working closely with the U.S. Navy. And on the whole, I would say that relations during the Korean War um, are quite cordial and quite close between the Americans and the British and the Canadians and the Australians. The way that the naval effort is divided uh, in the Korean War leads to most of the American fleet carriers, the big Essex-class carriers, operating off of Korea's east coast. And there's one, two, and three of those big carriers and a big uh, carrier task force off the east coast. On the west coast, they do a rotation of British American, and at one point on Australian, uh, escort carriers and light carriers. And they, they keep one on station off of the West Coast at any given time to provide close air support and uh, blockade duties and to protect convoys that are bringing in supplies and reinforcements for the ground forces. And so it's especially on the West Coast of Korea that you really see a, uh, a dazzling array of uh, multinational forces. There's instances where there's a an Australian carrier being escorted by British 
American, Canadian, and Dutch uh, distillers and frigates all at the same time. So you get a really uh, multinational flavor in some of these in some of these uh, efforts, um, uh, especially on the on the West Coast. The efforts that had gone into planning and to creating multinational naval publications, like Allied Tactical Publication One, which is a, a naval maneuvering book that the British, Canadians, and Americans write themselves and then they give to NATO. It's best known today as a NATO document, but it's actually written by those three navies. Those publications are first put to use in Korea, um, not necessarily at the beginning of the conflict, but by the end, by 52 and 53, they're being used and tested and shown to be broadly effective in allowing navies to operate together using common tactical publications. Um, the Korean conflict also at the same time highlights some of the differences in approach uh, between the Americans and the British and the Commonwealth. Um, there's a British officers tended to think that uh, American operational orders were overly prescriptive and overly long. Uh, and the British interpretation of that was that the Americans gave their ship captains and task force commanders less flexibility. Um, the, the Americans for their part found that uh, the Royal Navy struggled to keep up with the pace of U.S. Navy communications, which uh, in wartime expanded dramatically. And the, the British um, had to, to work hard to keep up with just the, the pace and the scale of message traffic that was coming out of U.S. Navy circuits. So there's, there's elements of tension, but on the whole, they work, uh, were able to smooth out those um, those concerns uh, and effectively work together in the Korean War. Given that they're all working together, not only for the Korean War, but they have this growing common threat with the Soviet Union and a Soviet Navy that's now really starting to emerge several years after the Second World War. What efforts are made to standardize technologies? The, they're certainly working on it. Uh, what they're finding in this early period is that standardizing equipment is really, really difficult and has a lot of challenges that limit their ability to make significant progress in this area. Um, it's easier, they find it easier to plan for future weapon systems and future ships than to, to go across the fleet and make widespread modifications across a large number of ships to bring uh, equipment into, uh, to, to, to standardize equipment um, across a large segment, segment of the fleet. So they find it difficult in that sense. Um, they are making progress uh, in this period and also later in the 50s in particular on electronic data transmission systems uh, that lead to things like Link 11, um, which is used in NATO to share tactical data between ships. So they're, they're making efforts in those areas. What they find is that it's easier to, or they can, I should say, they can do it more quickly. Uh, they can standardize doctrine uh, and procedures faster than they can equipment. And so kind of it's the approach that uh, I refer to is they find it easier to standardize concepts before calibers and they are able to make uh, make progress in this area, especially in anti-submarine warfare um, that they are not able to make in areas, say, like sonar buoys, where they try to standardize sonar buoys. And for a whole host of reasons, that just falls apart uh, until the late 1950s. It takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder to standardize than they would have liked. One of the challenges to equipment standardization is that the more that you standardize and begin using common systems, 
uh, well, there's there's less and less need for every country to have the capability to produce those systems. Uh, and so then you run into a situation where you might be dependent on, say, one country to produce your anti-aircraft missiles. Well, that, that may or may not be the best um, from a strategic point of view if you have a difference of opinion about some future conflict. Um, there's one Canadian officer who in this period said that standardized equipment is all great so long as it's all made in Toronto. Because <laughs> um, there's also a domestic uh, economic element where nobody wants to give up all of their capability um, and the jobs that are associated with those capabilities to produce equipment. Corbin, earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that we were going to to the Radford Collins Agreement of 1951. Could you explain the significance of that agreement? John Collins is a Royal Australian Navy officer who uh, is a uh, Commodore and then a Rear Admiral by the end of the Second World War, and he becomes the the first naval member, the Australian equivalent of our Chief of Naval Operations in the early Cold War. Uh, he goes to Hawaii twice, uh, first in 1948 and then again in 1951 to uh, meet the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet. Uh, it's DeWitt Ramsey the first time and then uh, Arthur Radford the second time. And he does so in both times because he's trying to improve the Royal Australian Navy's ability to operate with the Americans. What he's concerned about is that in the event of a war with the Soviet Union, he wants to know what uh, convoy routes and what areas of the Pacific Ocean should the Royal Australian Navy plan to cover and what areas are the Americans planning to cover? How are we going to allocate um, forces? And so in this 1951 agreement, they agree to a wartime exchange of liaison officers. They agree to set up um, communication channels and they agree to the division of the Pacific into areas of responsibility for anti-submarine and merchant ship control purposes. So it's not, they're not dividing up the Pacific into a total command of naval forces where everything in this area is under Australian control and everything in this area is under American control. They're doing it for specific purposes. Um, the, the practical uh, outcome of that is it leads to closer ties between the Australian Navy and the Pacific Fleet, um, regular ship visits, more regular exercises. And in practice, if you look at the language that is used in the agreement, it's the same language that the Pacific uh, Command would have used if it was making an agreement with the Far Eastern Command under General MacArthur, who's overseeing the occupation of Japan. So in that sense, the Pacific Command is treating the Royal Australian Navy like another American geographic command in terms of the, the, the arrangements that they're making with them, which I think is a really interesting way of, of kind of seeing this relationship between these navies. It's not to say they see them as fully American, but at least in this sense, they're treating them as a neighboring geographic combatant command. Professor Corbin Williamson, his first book, The U.S. Navy and its Cold War Alliances, 1945 to 1953, will be published this year by the University Press of Kansas. Corbin, Thank you so much for taking your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of Preble Hall, and I'm really glad to be on here. Thanks, and hope to have you on again anytime you want to talk. Uh, we'd be happy to have you on. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed the program, please leave feedback on whatever platform you're listening to this, and have a great day.
Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.